Hello everyone, it is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to this week's show. So today we're going to get into a topic that I haven't really covered before and you could argue that I'm a bit behind the game because everyone is talking about this topic and that is AI, artificial intelligence. The reason I haven't got into this before is I'm not necessarily one just to jump on the bandwagon of what everyone is talking about if I don't have an informed view or I haven't done my own research on the topic. But what I wanted to do today was look at AI through the lens of marketing and I think cover what I'm seeing a lot at the moment, whereas people are using things like ChatGPT to go out there and and create content when they haven't created content before. And what's, what are the implications of that? But more importantly, what are the opportunities for us as business owners when we're thinking about scaling? So joining me on the show today is an expert in this space. His name is Joe Stolte. Now, not only is Joe uh, the CEO of Daily.ai, which is an AI company that we're going to talk about quite a lot on the show today, he is also a founder, a serial entrepreneur who has had three pretty impressive exits. One of them is Lottery.com which went public for, get this, $526 million. Another one is Growflow, which he sold for $62.5 million. And he's been involved, as I said, in many, many other pursuits uh, other than those ones I've mentioned. But his latest venture, Daily.ai, is an AI company that helps brands and thought leaders publish AI-automated email newsletters. That's a bit of a mouthful that produce 40 to 60% open rates in less than five minutes a week and all without writing a single piece of content. You don't have to have a personality brand. You don't have to be famous and you don't have to like be a New York Times bestselling author. So he produces newsletters for thought leaders such as Peter Diamandis, Joe Polish, JJ Virgin, Cameron Herald, Chris Voss, and at the moment, 70 other small brands in different industries. So what you're going to get out of this today is a conversation, as I said, about AI, about the impact of AI in marketing. But more importantly, what I want it to do is help stimulate some thinking so that you can start to incorporate these new and progressive technologies in scaling your business. Uh, we look at AI as a really, really, really good intern. And you would never ship intern work to the marketplace. You always have a more experienced person look at it. Because what we have, Nick, the benefit of our being in business for a while is we're way up the experience curve. So we have the understanding, knowledge, and discernment to be able to look at a piece of marketing or a piece of content or a piece of anything and say, wow, this needs to be changed because of X, Y, and Z. Like we have an intuition around what might work and we're smart enough to still test it. Sit back and relax. It's a fun one. <laughs> Welcome to the show today, Joe Stolter. Hey, everybody. It is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up. This week on the show, I have Joe Stolte with me. Now, we're going to talk about a number of different things. Um, the first thing we're going to talk about is he's been involved in some pretty impressive exits. So whenever I get someone who's been down that journey, I like to probe them a bit on their fun experience. <laughs> so we'll get into that in a second. <laughs> but what we're going to talk about today is a really interesting area that I haven't gone into in a lot of detail on the show as yet. And people always get in touch with me and say, why not? And that is the power of AI. And more importantly, how AI is getting used in business really successfully and how aggressively and quickly it's taking shape and making a huge difference uh, across the world. And Joe is an expert in that space and his business, Daily.ai, is something that we're going to go into today. So, Joe, welcome to the show. Nick, it's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Excellent. Well, we connected um, through some mutual friends quite recently, which is great. And then we worked out that we had a whole heap of other mutual friends. And in fact, the funny thing was, I think we we're in the same room a few weeks back, st standing probably next to each other. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Andrews, mastermind, the family family mastermind. That's bizarre. I still think that's bizarre because I was talking to Trey Taylor and those guys and you were literally, I think, three people away from me. Indeed. Yeah. It's, uh, well, clearly the universe wanted us to get together and uh, meet and, uh, and do this. So I'm glad we got connected. Likewise, likewise. Well, let's let's get into your background first before we get into uh, the cool stuff that you're doing with content and AI and those sort of things. Uh, as I mentioned, you've been involved in a couple of exits and you've got a pretty impressive uh, track record as an entrepreneur. So do you want to take us through kind of kind of that journey, please? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I started my career in management consulting and I spent a few years at Microsoft. And then I, I kind of felt the call to to go on this entrepreneurial journey. A lot of my friends were leaving, you know, corporate America and starting cool companies in Silicon Valley. So we decided to leave Seattle and head down to LA. And we were in Venice Beach during kind of this really great Cambrian explosion of tech. When was this? And, give, um, give us a time you know, check on that. What, what, what about approximately what years? It was about 2012. So this is oh, like man. the rise of Silicon Beach. You know, Google hadn't really gotten a big foothold down there yet. And, you know, um, got it. We would have overlapped really a little bit because a, I was, um, I was at Getty Images in Seattle around 2009 10 11 so you would have been at microsoft around the same time then if you left at 20, 2012. yeah that's right that's right yeah, definitely, bizarre. we definitely were um, crazy but you know fast forward now just looking back over the last 10 11 years um i'm a five-time founder i've had three exits including a company called lottery.com which went public on a spac for 520 something million dollars and you know more recently in 2021 uh, we sold a company called Growflow for $62.5 million. Uh, we took that company from 900K in ARR to 8 million in less than three years during the pandemic oh, in wow. a regulated market without the ability to buy ads. And it's very relevant to what we're doing now because we built that growth on the back of a really great sales team and then direct marketing over email and you know some direct mail, but mostly email. And so when that company was being sold, I, I started looking around. I was like, what, what, what else is out there? You know, I want, I want to do this again um, one more time, but I, and I'd like to work on something in email, you know, may, maybe with AI. And, you know, it's funny what you put out into the world what comes back because I got an introduction to my two current business partners now, Evan Pagan and Dr. Peter Diamandis, who had sort of this alpha project for an AI newsfeed thing. And, um, you know, and, and I, I got to meet them and I took over as CEO, we built a team and we, we, that's kind of the genesis of daily.ai, but it was really born out of looking into um, how difficult but ubiquitous email is as a channel for growing businesses. So it's, a, oh, it's this fun is how be, it all kind of weaves this together. This will be fun. This will be fun because we haven't done anything on email here. I mean, when I did the early days of the show, and we're like 350 episodes in now, uh, we went quite deep into different types of strategies, marketing strategies, organic activity, paid, all that. We've done a lot of that. We haven't really done a lot of email. So I want to get into that definitely, but I want to kind of start a little bit back because I'm just curious. With lottery.com um, through a SPAC, which is interesting, how was that experience? Just, just take us through briefly the wild ride of, of a, an IPO through that mechanism because <laughs> it's gets yeah, a lot of, know, it, gets, um, it gets a lot of criticism these days because a lot of them have blown up and haven't really done anything, but you obviously were one of the ones who got through the, the mist. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I left right before we did this back, smart. Um, but I was talking smart to joke. the, yeah. Um, <laughs> what was it right before I, I left, you know, um, eight or nine months before that process started, 
Um, but I was talking to the the other founders and um, we, we talked about a SPAC. You know, I think I had introduced the CEO to the idea of a SPAC and, um, you know, it was, it was interesting. Like it was a unique vehicle and a unique opportunity. And, um, you know, I think they ended up taking advantage of it. But candidly, I really had nothing to do with it at that point. Like I was moving on to other things. My, my wife was pregnant with our first child and I was becoming a father. And so I was going through this transition from, you know, man to father. And that was, and, and then we went right into the pandemic. So, you know, it, it, there was like this erasure of time there or like time really blurred. Um, but, you know, I, I, but I have, I have many, many friends that have gone through that experience of, uh, of doing a SPAC and, um, you know, it certainly has its benefits and its trade-offs, you know, it's a nice off-ramp and it's liquidity. And if you've got, you've got what it takes to get consistent growth and the, and the, wherewithal to run a publicly traded company and all the, the regulatory things that come associated with that, which is completely different from running a high growth startup, then, then great, more power to you. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people don't have that long look in the mirror and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a publicly traded company. This is a, a wildly different ball game. And, you know, just all the, the wild stuff that happens with SPAC. They're not aware I'm of glad it. that it worked for some people. <laughs> They're just not aware <laughs> of what it means. I mean, um, and me, yeah. people come to me, the reason I bring it up is people come to me quite a bit and say, I want to create a unicorn. I want it to be worth a billion dollars. And we're going to, you know, go to the public markets. And then I, I often have to sort of tell them very quickly, that's not an exit, right? You've got to be realized it's a capital raise, right? And it's a transition of the whole governance structure of your business. And I know three people personally who have very close to going to jail because they didn't get their own understanding of what it means to be a publicly regulated business. So it's not, it's not for the faint hearted in my world of, um, private equity, just for context, we would only really go into the public markets when we run out of private money. Like usually when the businesses yep. have gone through the higher levels of private equity, because there's so much cash that sits underneath it, but it's always good to hit, you know, have people on the show who have been through it. Um, and had a, well, I know you yeah. were there for the whole way through, but at least you, at least you're alive. <laughs> and smiling joke because some <laughs> some people are like ah I mean, you know the people do lose a lot when they go through that vehicle that's why it's one of the one of the exit pathways i suppose that i don't really recommend as unless you're really understanding it yeah and i think at the end of the day and this is going to sound really obvious but if you just build a great business with a great culture and a great growth engine and you can call your shot even a little bit then you can start i think thinking about the public markets you know because if you can't do those things and you don't have those things in place, then I, I would you should seriously look at every other option for capitalizing, continuing the growth exactly. and survival of the company. Uh, uh, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. But the other thing about that is like, if you, if you do exactly what you just said, you know, build a great business, right. You know, you're going to be attractive well before, you know, to, to, to external investors, acquirers, whatever, well before you have to entertain that more complex pathway. So certainly in my world of that, when people understand it, but interesting, 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 you went through it. Now take me through quickly, um, grow flow as well. So you said you, did you start that in the pandemic? Yeah. So actually it turns out that, um, another, there's another founder in the business. So this, this company did compliance software, regulated compliance software in the regulated markets of uh, cannabis in the U S okay. so the company, even though the, it was a B2B SaaS company, but even though we never touched the plant, um, we were, we were regulated the same from a marketing and advertising perspective. So think about customer acquisition, you know, for a SaaS business, it was like having one hand tied behind your back to one foot, you know, it was like, like a oh hopping gosh. race or something. And, um, but, you know, we, we came in the, the original CEO and founder, uh, Rufus Casey had gotten it to just shy of a million in ARR and, you know, basically called in a friend of mine who I worked at that lottery and was like, Hey, I really need, I really need someone to come in and take this business to the next level. And so, uh, you know, my, my friend, Travis, who I'd, I've worked with, we've sold the company before in the past. 
um, you know, he recruited me. We, we came in and we re-recruited some of our team from lottery and kind of rebuilt the machine. Um, we raised, uh, we raised some capital on March 20th, 2020, which is a clutch, you know, perfect oh, do you know, timing. Do you know where I was that day? This is this, I'll just tell you, this is a funny story. I literally flew to San Francisco from London and in the air, right. That was when president Trump said, there's no more, no more UK to us kind of travel. And I had to get out at SFO and, and literally get interviewed and then effectively put back on a plane. It was, it, it, was, was, uh, it, was the, it was the funniest day in like, it was just crazy. It was, I think it was the 19th or 20th, but it was exactly around that point. It was just mental. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's funny. Cause like there's already enough complexity in a regulated market. Right. And then you add like a pandemic on top of it. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it was fun. You know, it, to me, I'm a serial entrepreneur, multiple time founder. It's a game and every new element or new variable is a new way to play the game. And so, you know, I think where a lot of people got frustrated, like our executive team was like, oh, this is kind of, well, this is interesting. Like, how the hell are we going to grow this business? We can't buy traffic, you know, uh, we can't door knock. Um, so we just got really creative. And, um, you know, we built it on the back of a very, very, very good culture. Like we were a culture first company. We grew the company from about a staff of 19 or 20 to about 120 in uh, just under 90 days. So once we raised our capital, we, you know, we turned the hiring machine on very quickly. Uh, we built a direct sales team, um, we have an amazing engineering team and customer success team, but we had a great direct sales team and we really used email as a penetration point. We're like, how can, how can we get people's attention during the pandemic? Well, we, we started saying direct mail. So we would send like gag gifts in the mail to get their attention with like, like clever little cards. Um, and, and the whole objective of the card was to get them to email us because once they emailed us willingly, then we could engage in a, in a two-way campaign of, of dialogue to try to get them interested in our products and services. So we came up with this really great campaign that was basically just like, hey, pandemic's crazy. We just want to help you with your business. Get on a call. Let's talk about how you're going to continue to grow your business during the pandemic. And that was it. And so we led with value first and we sold this idea of like, let us help you assess what's going on in your business so that we can help you scale and think about growth. Oh, and by the way, as you're scaling and growing, we happen to have a compliance software that tracks everything and gives you great insights on your Got inventory. It. So this data. was just for clarity. Yeah. This was cannabis businesses that you were reaching out to? Yeah. So everybody in the value chain. So there's um, people that grow, there's people that process, there's people that sort of sell the end yep. retail side. Yeah. So I, I want to kind of go quite deep into this area because it's going to segue into um, daily.ai as well. So you talked two things, actually. First, let's just start with the cultural point, because you've, you've brought that up a couple of times. Um, you scaled the business super quick from an employee count perspective. How did you manage the culture through that? Yeah, so we've been virtual first since we first started our business since 2013, like as from an entrepreneurial perspective. So yeah. um, we had a distributed team. We're, so we were digital native long before the pandemic. So we kind of had best practices around, OK, well, how do you create a good digital culture that's distributed? And um, we already had some good data around like, okay, after 150 employees, it gets much harder to build um, kind of the, the, the performance out of your team when it's totally virtual. Um, so how we did it is, you know, it's very basic stuff, very basic to us, but maybe not to everyone that's hearing this, is very, very clear mission. What are we working on? What's the North Star? How do we think about success? Very clear values. So every single, uh, we, every Friday, we'd have an all hands meeting. And the first thing we would do is have people kind of shout out our, our company values. And then every manager that had staff reporting to them starts every virtual meeting, every team meeting with the same thing. We call it popcorn values. Hey, just shout out what our core values are. And then they would grab one core value and one person and be like, cool. Um, like one of our one of our core values was extreme ownership. So I would say, Nick said, oh, extreme ownership. I say, okay, Nick, what does that mean to you? 
you tell me what it means. And they say, give me an example of someone on the team that's demonstrated extreme ownership. So we're constantly re like, like making the values real. They weren't just like these digital yeah. values that lived on the, on the paper, like they were real. And then, you know, and every month we would true up those four values by saying, how have we, what evidence do we have to suggest that people are actually living these four values? And for the ones where it was like, I don't know, I don't, like, I don't have any good examples. We would ask, well, is this a valuable core value? Is this an aspiration or is it a value? An aspiration is something that we want, a value is something that we do. So then we would constantly calibrate that. And, you know, we would prune the bottom values that weren't serving us. Or we would look in the mirror and say, why aren't we doing this? What's the resistance? Why aren't we showing up in this way? Why is this something we say we want to do, but something we're not doing? And we just embedded it systemically into every single sort of team skip level all the way down to, you know, the ICs at the lowest level of the company. And um, that was one of the ways that we kept, kept, you know, the culture breathing and moving. And, you know, we were able like, I'll just say this, 10 years ago, growing a culture was easy. Growing a culture during the pandemic that's virtual is very difficult. There's been a complete shift in value systems in America, in the Western world, right? And so you, you, during, you know, so for example, one of these flashpoints is like, do we post a black square on Instagram as a brand? And you got one side of the company that's like for it and one side of it that's against it. So how do you parse that, right? So the way that we parse it is we said, hey, listen, we want to honor everyone's individual value system, but we're, we've recruited you here for, to live the values of our company. We're on the company mission. And we think it's great if you have a personal mission, but we're on our company mission. And so that we use that as a hiring criteria to say, hey, like if you can't be on our company mission and you want to subjugate that to your own personal mission, like we don't want to make you wrong for that. It's just, you're just not going to be a good fit here. You're not going to have fun and we're not going to have fun with you. So we had to, we had to navigate all that real time. And it wasn't easy because as a leader and a leadership team, we've never had to deal with so many cultural flashpoints at once. And so I could keep going, but that, you know, that's no, well, yeah, how I, we I, a couple of questions on that. And then I'm just going to make a, a comment. How, how many values did you have? And, and did they change? Did you actually yeah. do what you said beforehand? Like that one's not serving us anymore as a behavior. So therefore it's not relevant. We're going to add a new one or take it away. Yeah, we had seven. Yeah, seven was like the magic number just from uh, what can people memorize? You know, like phone numbers in the US are seven digits. So it's easy to and remember. Did you change any? Numbers of seven. Yeah, we changed all the time. So every six months we would, you know, kind of remove the bottom one that wasn't being acted on. But every quarter we'd have that look in the mirror and say, hey, why aren't we living this? And then let's let's do it. Let's like let's remove the internal or whatever blockers are that are are not allowing us to show up in this way for this value. And then we try and if, and then we show up at the end of that one and at six month period and say, wait, you know what? This isn't actually serving us. And here's why. Here's some examples why this is actually a, a value that sounds great on paper but doesn't pan out. So let's let's it's we're out of integrity to list it as a value and not live it. What's something that we could uh, pivot it into that's more reflective of the reality and how we want to show up? So yeah, every six months or so we would. Uh, kind of true up wow. the, the values that weren't being expressed. Yeah. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to um, reiterate or reflect on something you said a few minutes ago. You said this may sound simple, but, you know, simple to you versus I, I can tell you <laughs> from working with multiple businesses that people don't get this right. The two things that the two things yeah. I think that really stop a business scaling other than having the right processes and systems, but ultimately that comes to the people piece and the culture piece is a very, very unclear, you called it mission and, and you, you know, you can get into the semantics of the differences between vision and mission, but not having a clear vision is, is the one that usually falls away. So in other words, if you can't articulate what it is you're trying to do, go towards North star, as you mentioned, um, then other people try and interpret that. And it's not because, you know, they necessarily are trying to do the wrong thing or be disruptive. It's just, they have no clarity. 
right? So you've got that. That's and right. then that piece on, on values, I don't think people really um, understand that values need to become behaviors, hardwired to some extent in terms of how people do things. There's too much of it like, hey, there's a word on a wall. Someone said we need values. If we have values, we'll have a great culture. And then they, won they wonder why they haven't. <laughs> Yeah. So we'd have to go into the depths of that. I just, I mean, I know a lot of people listening to this, I get lots of questions on these areas. So for you to articulate it in that way, particularly through a very, very challenging time, uh, there's a lot in what you said, even if you don't appreciate that. Yeah, no, great. And I, I, the one distinction that I want to make sure people get is values are what you do and aspirations are what you say. Like aspirations are what the head thinks the heart should want. And, and, you know, if you're not living it, it's an aspiration. So just be clear if it's a, if it's words on a wall and those are aspirations, maybe you're fine with that. But if you want to shape your culture, values are an expression of what you actually do. So you got to keep track of that. I agree fully. And we, we, we called them um, at Getty, which was a, the best example of me personally experiencing this. We called them leadership principles and we had seven. And, um, and we then, uh, it was a little bit um, extreme because we measured everybody in terms of their overall performance against those principles. And that then hit, hit their remuneration which was interesting in its own right. Yeah. So it was got your personal objectives. That's what you have to do, but how you do them, how you demonstrate these leadership principles is also going to affect you in that way, as much as it's going to affect the organization. It worked, but it was aggressive in terms of kind of what it meant. It came, it came very cultish because people were so indoctrined by it that, um, yeah. you know, they, they would almost a little bit like, um, God, what's that movie? The, uh, Lord of the Flies, right? Where if you, if you if you weren't if you weren't in the tribe, you were kicked out of the tribe, sort of stuff. Either properly kicked out, in other words, you left the company, or just you know pushed aside in the company, which is even worse. But anyway, that's a a side topic for another day. I want to get into the um, the fun AI stuff. Um, cool. Okay, so let's jump ahead and talk about the marketing piece here, because because you you said you learned some stuff here within the pandemic. Um, is this around if you can't do ads? and you can't go out there and establish as many partnerships, let's say there's, there's, there's constraints. Where does that leave you from a marketing standpoint? Yeah, the, the one advantage that we had is in some of these markets, because you had to register your entity, um, because it's, it's a very regulated market, um, there was basically public databases that were made available uh, via the like state level government where you could get the address and contact information of a lot of these organizations. And so we, we we benefited from that. So we had the address and we had the phone number and we had the email. Most of these businesses over time were smart enough to be like, all right, we're going to give you a number that goes nowhere. And, you know, a, like an email that doesn't really get, go to anybody. Like um, Matt, but, Matt but, at cat.com sort of thing. Or just like, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, like word at company.com, you know, like maybe, maybe somebody's know. looking at it, maybe not. So, but, but, you know, so what we did is we, we, we built some tools to, to mine that and say, all right, well, which of these look like real legit emails and you know, how fast can we dial these numbers to figure out if they're real or not? So we, we had some, some, some humans basically banging the phones and we had some machines looking at emails, making some assessments just to parse the data a little bit. Um, and then we said, Hey, you know what? These physical addresses are probably real. So that's probably the highest leverage data point. And it's probably the place where no one else in the marketplace is going to go to. They're not going to knock on the door. They probably aren't thinking about direct mail. And if they are, they probably don't know what they're doing. And so, uh, you know, I've been a student of direct response marketing for a very long time, like long before my management consulting days, I was like studying the greats, like the Gary Halberts and the Claude Hopkins and the Jay Abrahams, and these kind of guys. And um, so I was like, what if we just did direct mail? You know, what if we sent some cool gifts in the mail to get their attention? 
And so we would send like, you can get these, we found these socks on Amazon that look like sushi. They look exactly like sushi, but you open it and it's socks. So we would send su sushi socks as a gag gift and say, hey, if you want real sushi, we'll grab Uber Eats just jump, and we'll do a digital lunch and help you think about how to grow your business. But we wrote this really clever sort of like one pager and we would mail them every other week until they responded to us. And we would get people that are like, hey, you know, like these letters are so funny. We have to respond to you. So they would, they would write us an email back. Once they wrote the email back, then we're in, then they're in totally different ballgame. Now we can have a dialogue with them. We can we can reach them much more cost effectively. Um, and so we started thinking about campaigns and sequences and different ways that we can engage them. Um, newsletters, content, helpful information, et cetera. Um, and so that once we had their email and they were interested in having a conversation with us, then we knew we were um, then we had the, the I wouldn't count that as a lead, but we had the potential of the lead. Um, but that, that was, that's basically what we did. So we tried to attack the parts of the market where we thought our competitors wouldn't, um, which meant more effort, slightly more cost. And then we tried to get emails because emails is why email email is an asset that you own. You don't mm -hmm. own your LinkedIn followers. You don't own your Twitter followers. You're beholden to the algorithm and how that works. And it's constantly changing perpetually, right? Um, you're playing their game, but on email with some you know, nuances, you more or less own your contacts. And so we wanted to own our contacts and own our destiny because we knew that we were in a regulated market and, you know, they weren't going to be nice to us otherwise, these other platforms. But I think axiomatically or principally, that's true whether you're in a regulated market or not. You want to own those contacts. And I, I think it's email. I think it's SMS. I think it's having people in communities like Slack and Discord and WhatsApp and Telegram if that's appropriate for your business. But I can go touch those people without much algorithmic interference and have a much higher probability of making first contact. So if you're just looking at marketing from a numbers perspective, being able to get in front of them, period, is the first stop, right? For email, that's deliverability. For your social posts, that's just even posting something that the algorithm, algorithmic gods will hopefully put in front of your people. You know, you have lots more degrees of control over email. And I give these keynotes all over the country in the US and like, I'll say, hey, raise your hand if you use email in your business. Every single hand goes up without fail. I'll say, keep your hand in the air if you use TikTok in your business. And then like most of the hands go down. And I'm kind of picking on TikTok, but it's true because love it or hate it, email is still the most, um, it's still the killer app, has more daily active users than any single social media platform on the planet. Why? Because every single business uses it. Every serious business person uses email. You have to. And so that's why we said, hey, email is a very, very powerful backbone that does, it's not sexy. It's not the new whiz bang social media paid advertising trick or whatever, but it's the backbone of how we do business. And so that's, it's always going to be there for you as a channel to develop a relationship with your, with your customers and your market. Yeah. There's lots, there's lots of value in what you just said that I often say to people, you've got to, you've got to take your client, your, your prospect off the platform, same thing you said. Yeah. And we, we've, we've, I've been involved in heaps of companies that have been sold in the end, usually to private equity as data companies, realistically, because, you know, we, we had an ability to farm data, mine data, get insights and aggregate that, and then create solutions off the back of that. And there was more value in data services in some of the companies that I was involved in than the core reason that those companies started in the first place. And it all came back to the amount of predictability, repeatability, sustainability they could have of their commercial models off the back of, yeah. of that. So, so I think, again, I just want to reiterate that to everyone listening that you need to have a strategy of that. So if you, if you're a, an influencer, not that I have many of those kind of, you know, Instagram guys on my thing, but you know, you know, the ones right? and you know, and you lose your 
um, you know, your, uh, your platform on Instagram, you get it turned off or something like that. Your business is dead. <laughs> so, so you've got to take yep. action of these things for sure. Cool. Okay. So you learned a lot. I mean, obviously you had a, a heap of background, as you said, in direct response, and you learned a lot about activating that here. Um, just remind us again of the performance you said, I think it was in three years, you went from 1 million ARR to something like eight. Is that correct? Yeah. 900 K to, uh, just over 8 million in three years and, and predominantly yep. off the back of, of doubling down on this strategy. I, I imagine later on yep. there was some more paid media coming in and other things, but the core was always yeah. this data email activity. hundred percent. Yeah. It was, uh, it was e building relationships over email, staying in contact over email and, um, you know, having an extraordinary, uh, kind of customer first sales team. I mean, 15 sales professionals, Train, we trained the, we trained them every day. We did literally role plays and training every day with that team. Um, it, it was it was great. So the email email is awesome as a channel from a marketing perspective for top and middle and getting people to the bottom of funnel. But you got to get them converted. The email is going to send them to your landing page or to your offer or to your salesperson or to get them to book a call or whatever. So you you know you still have to have a phenomenal offer and a great sort of, of conversion ability. Um, with wherever you're sending them from a traffic perspective, but email is an extraordinary way to push them, you know, get them to the top of the funnel, get them down to the middle, push them down to the bottom, and then get them on the call with the sales professional that actually closed them. So it's not like email is going to cure all your ills. It's just this amazing tool. And if you've got a great offer that converts well and, or an incredible sales team that, that can help, you know, actually get money out of other people's bank accounts and put it into yours, then, you know, email can be an awesome accelerant to your business. Perfect. Well, let's let's get into what you're doing now and the transition into daily.ai. So, so and, and also what would be interesting here is just to take some of the learnings that you had previously and how you've brought that together in this company. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the one thing about email, you know, about 80% of SMBs, you know, that is uh, organizations, business organizations with less than 100 employees, they 80% they, of them rely on email as either their primary acquisition source or their primary retention source. So it's this huge backbone of how smaller organizations um, get work done and have a relationship with their customers. Um, but the problem is, is, you know, about 40% of them spend multiple weeks, not days, not hours, multiple weeks writing a single marketing piece. And about a third of that time is spent on what do I put in the, in this piece, whether that's a, a marketing outreach or an email newsletter or whatever. And so it's this huge blank page problem. And then, you know, along came generative AI and you have this Cambrian explosion of the ability to create outputs. So now all of a sudden, like everybody's getting this like massive dopamine rush of, wow, I can really create content. I can create outputs in the blink of an eye, you know, and I, you sort of have this like whiz bang trick of talking to a super intelligence that will make copy appear on the page, which is great. Um, but the trouble is, uh, Nick, is that 40% of the content that you put into the marketplace actually pushes a prospect away from the sale. Why? Because it's the wrong journey for the prospect, so wrong time, wrong channel, wrong message. And so you could actually do quite a bit of harm by loading up and firing off the, on that marketing email or whatever that piece is uh, if, if, if you don't have those pieces in place. And we struggle with that a lot at, at Growflow. So I said, hey, at Daily, how can we use machine learning? Uh, to solve that problem. So one of the first principles we came up with as a company is we said, hey, we're going to be about outcomes over outputs. Everybody has a generative AI tool wrapped around GPT X, three, four, five, whatever, and they can give you an awesome output instantly. We want to get our customers outcomes. How do we do that? Well, we did that primarily through something we call adaptive learning or iterative intelligence, which is every time someone opens one of our email newsletters, 
um, we track what, what what made them open, the open rate, the subject lines. We look at everything they click on. And the newsletter automatically gets smarter using machine learning immediately based on how everyone's behaving. So the next edition is smarter and smarter and smarter because we're trying to close the gap between um, what a publisher thinks the audience wants and what the audience actually wants in terms of the, the content within these marketing pieces, which for us happen to be newsletters. So let's go through why newsletters. I mean, I, we've talked about the power of email. I, I, I think I know what you're going to say here, but I kind of want you to articulate it for, for the listeners. But what is it about newsletters yeah. specifically? Yeah, newsletters are an awesome vehicle because I think one of the first things that marketers, especially smaller organizations, get wrong, well, certainly bigger organizations too, is you got to start with who is my customer and what's in it for them, right? A lot of people write emails to their market and it's like me, 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 buy my stuff like me, 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 right? My brand, me, my organization, whatever. But I think if you start with really who am I talking to and what's in it for them, like what would they actually be interested in learning or, or reading about or engaging with, you can broaden the spectrum of what's, what you put out to the marketplace, right? So a newsletter is this beautiful place where you can say, hey, I'm not just going to give you content from me. I can actually curate content from other people, top content creators in the world that are talking about content and topics that are maybe adjacent to what my brand's subject matter expertise is, but, but that my ideal target prospect is imminently interested in. And I can get the credit as the curator for sort of wrapping that all up and saying, Hey, here's what we're paying attention to. So if I'm, if I'm selling to real estate agents, you know, a real estate agent, if like, like the obvious thing to do is we just make a newsletter that's just about real estate, but real estate agents, they, they care about other things. They care about maybe growing their revenue and their business and talking about productivity getting their mindset right, maybe learning a bit about sales and marketing. So it's not just about real estate. So why would you uh, only talk about, you know, the, the one thing that your brand is maybe known for does in the marketplace? And a newsletter is a phenomenal place to be able to create a container where you can serve people with highly interesting information that's relevant to their journey and the outcomes that they want um, that isn't just about you. And certainly you can do that over like email sequences and, and that kind of thing. But think about the bang for the buck you get when I go out and I create a beautiful newsletter that has a bunch of valuable information for you on a regular basis um, that isn't just about me. It's me trying to serve you. That says something a lot about your marketplace. It says something about uh, how you show up as a brand, your willingness to be helpful and not make it all about you. And that's a complete flip for most people's inboxes. And that's really valuable for them. Yeah, there are some outstanding newsletters out there now that I subscribe to, which I kind of, to some extent, some extent get uh, mesmerized get it out nick um in terms of how good the quality is right you know like there's um do you know cody sanchez have you ever seen her newsletter yeah it's really good yeah like, it's it's just, great. and i kind of think how the hell does it happen now I, I say that and there's others of course i just mentioned that one because it comes to mind there's that and then as you said beforehand everyone has access to some sort of tool that can go out there and use ai to create content but i'll say this you know politely most of it is shit right? And you can see it like right. a mile out. Like, you know, when you see all these people who never created content before are now putting out content and it looks like a robot has done it because so many people are using it. So my question to you is, how do you bridge that gap, right? Between, you know, someone just using this, the, 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 the tool bluntly versus a Cody Sanchez example versus, and I'm going to bring sort of your business into that, how you guys do it. Cause for me, yeah, it's not about just the content. It's also about the quality and the consistency in those things. Yeah. Well, to contextualize what I'm about to say, like our mission as a company is that every small business can market without being a marketer. You don't need to go study all of the things that we've studied years and years and years of marketing to figure out how to be great at Damn. it. 
Um, and don't say yeah. that. Like you let you've let the cat <laughs> out. That's not good. <laughs> yeah. Well, 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 I encourage that. But you know, if you haven't done that and you don't have the resources or a marketing team or the budget to go hire, you know, a data scientist, an analytics person, a copywriter, a designer, and all these different people that you need to pull together to make great content in the marketplace, or subjugate all of your time to mastering it. Um, you know, we want to use tools and technology to help fulfill that. So what I'm about to say will be kind of couched under that. But what we do is we we look at uh, we look at AI as a really 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 good intern. And you would never ship intern work to the marketplace. You always have a more experienced person look at it. Because what we have, Nick, the benefit of our being in business for a while is we're way up the experience curve. So we have the understanding, knowledge, and discernment to be able to look at a piece of marketing or a piece of content or a piece of anything and say, wow, this needs to be changed because of X, Y, and Z. Like we have an intuition around what might work and we're smart enough to still test it, right? The AI doesn't have any of that. Generative AI is input, process, output. What you get is what you get. And if you're not testing it, you're not um, bathing it in the reality of the marketplace of what your audience wants and watching actually how they perform, then you're never going to know if it actually works. So that's the first thing was the adaptive learning. But secondly, we said, you know, rather than trying to use AI to make content, you know, what we, we, we thought was we, we started this back in 2021. We said, where is this going and how can we skate to where the puck is? Well, where everybody will be is let's just make a bunch of outputs. So we said, What's the way that we could use another way of, because generative AI is one kind of AI under the AI umbrella. You know, you've got machine learning and uh, computer vision and on and on and on. There's all these other types of AI. So we said, what if we could use machine learning and curate the world's most interesting content? You know, think about how much time, for example, the researcher at Stanford, BJ Fogg, the, the professor of BJ, you know, BJ Fogg. I do, I know. He's, got, he's got some interesting books. <laughs> And, and, and let's think about how much time James Clear has spent distilling a lot of that knowledge into like very, 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 maybe top 1% of the top 1% of blogs on the planet through his, through his content, you know, that he's author of Atomic Habits. Yeah. So we could curate, we could curate content from people like James Clear, who's put his whole life into mastering this topic, much more sophisticated, much higher quality than AI. And we can use machine learning, a form of AI to curate that. And then find out the most interesting stuff that James Clear has ever done, the most interesting stuff that Tim Ferriss has ever done, the most interesting stuff that Charlie Munger has ever put in the world and say, hey, are these thought leaders or these pieces of content relevant to this audience? If yes, let's put it in the newsletter, but let's actually summarize it in a way that's really easy to digest, like a 25 word summary, three bullet takeaway and why it matters to that audience. That's where we're going to use AI to, to generate content. But it's not long form. It's just, hey, here's a summary of this content, what we think is valuable for you and why you should read it. And we do that seven or eight or nine or 10 times in an easy scroll through a newsletter. Now that's highly valuable. It's a, a, achieving a goal which is, a satisfies what's in it for the end audience. And we're not biting off more than we can chew today with generative AI, which is trying to sound extraordinary and human and writing long form text that ends up sounding like nonsense. Yes. And, and then we still have a human <laughs> We, about 90% of our newsletters are fine and ready to ship, but that 10% that isn't, we still have an expert human on our side and review it and look at the brand principles for the publishers on our platform and say, oh, you know what? This one doesn't actually fit because this person's so, sort of a competitor. So we're going to remove that and then give a note to the machine learning to exclude that in the future. So we're we're using humans to fine tune so the like, AI. Is that like the a background. quality control type of thing effectively at the end? So, that, so it, as you exactly. said, it's, it's predominantly there, but there's that that human sense check. Yeah, exactly. So to summarize, the two things that we're doing to answer your question is number one, mm -hmm. we're not creating content. That's not our main focus. We're curating content. So we're using machine learning, a form of AI to curate, not to create. 
And then secondly, our approach is AI plus human, because we think that gives you the best outcomes. And there's lots of precedent outside of marketing and email newsletters that suggest that's the case. So how do we take the best of you know, the intelligence between our ears and the best of the intelligence we, we can get from AI to produce the best outcome? Now, it's highly leveraged. 90, 93, 94% of what we do is automated, right? But that last final mile, we want to, we want to check it. We want to have an expert check it. And so we can significantly increase, let's say, uh, lead time for production, uh, get that get that way down, uh, while also maintaining outcomes, open rates, click-throughs, clicks on the ads, lead generation, and uh, outcomes for the business. So let's go through a couple a couple of things here before we start to wrap this up, because this is fascinating. I want to I want to understand. Let's use an example of someone that you can talk about that's one of your clients or customers. Um, yeah. If you can share one of them, I know there's a few that um, I know or we know personally. I'd like you to kind of articulate what their brand is about, therefore to kind of indicate their content. And then just some examples of, of the sort of content that they would curate that fits under their brand, just so people can sort of sort of feel that a little bit more as you, as you explain it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm, I'm gonna give you a, an example of one of our thought leaders we have on the platform, yeah. but I just wanna preface, like you don't have to have a personality brand, you don't have to be famous and you don't have to like be a New York Times bestselling author. We just happen to have a lot of those on our platform. So here's an example. We make the newsletter for Chris Voss. Chris Voss is the go-to expert for all things negotiating right now. You know, he's sort of rewriting the rules and it's, it's, it's a beautiful way he's done in that category. He's also multiple New York Times bestselling author of the book, Never Split the Difference. And he's an awesome human above all, right? But his brand in terms of like how he goes to market, he has a, he has a company called the Black Swan Group. They do amazing work. And what they do if you if you study how they show up in the marketplace, their brand is authoritative, uh, factual, and data driven, right? And so that's how his newsletter sounds with us. So so Chris is the kind of the de facto expert in negotiating, but we also know, and they know from looking studying their audience, but we know from looking at what their audience is into, they're not just into negotiating, right? We're talking to business leaders, we're talking to entrepreneurs, business owners. They're also into leadership. They're also into things like flow state. Um, they're also into like other kinds of communication techniques, et cetera. So we've found these adjacent topics where Chris isn't the top de facto expert that his audience is actually interested in. Um, and then we've curated content from other thought leaders that, you know, the Black Swan Group and Chris are proud to send to their audience that their audience loves to construct a newsletter that's completely different than anything that they were doing in the past because their brand is awesome at negotiating stuff and all their content is around negotiating. And if you're into negotiations, you should definitely go to their website, Black Swan Group, check out The Edge. Their blog is incredible. They put a lot of time into it. It's high quality content, but it's in a specific lane. So we're able to open up all these other adjacent lanes that are important to their audience um, where Chris and his brand can get credit for being the curator of that content to their market. Love it. And how, using that example, because again, I want to say, how is um, the success of that activity being measured? What are some of the metrics that you get asked to look at? Yeah, so um, we, kind of our headline is we help thought leaders and small brands publish AI automated newsletters that get 40 to 60% open rates. Right, okay, okay, so the main the main metric is open rate. The, the industry average open rate, like best in class, is like 20, maybe 25, maybe 30%. If your newsletter on our platform isn't getting a 40% open rate, we have like a tiger team that like dives in and helps you solve it and, you know, gets it up. Uh, people like Chris, I can't divulge his open rate. It is much, 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 much higher than 60%, right? So if you already have resonance with your audience and you go through our process, sort of our multiplier, 
it can be much higher than 60%. Um, the inverse is true. If you have no resonance with your audience, they don't want to hear from you, or you bought some list on the internet, like zero resonance times our multiplier is still zero. Um, but we're able to do through uh, like our process and the way that the newsletter works is really skyrocket the open rate. That's the first one. The next one is the click-through rate. Like what are people clicking on? And specifically what we do is we help you design what we call a conversion card. It's an ad in your newsletter that advertises your products and services to drive clicks, traffic, and attention to wherever you want that to go. That's to, to buy something or to book a call or to generate a lead or watch a webinar, whatever it is. And so the next metric is what is the CTR on the main call to action, which is typically the, the ad for the newsletter. So those are the metrics that we use to measure success for, for our audience. Um, you know, and we ultimately know like all organizations, including small to medium sized businesses, they want, they want throughput, they want sales and, and they want the outcome on, on the sales side. So for some customers, you know, we pipe in their CRM and we're able to see, how those clicks actually led attributably to sales. And so th th so ultimately we want to be able to show, hey, this newsletter created a return of your investment and a positive return on top of that. Um, but to get there, we look at the leading indicators of open rates, clicks and clicks on your ads. Love it. Very good. All right. So this is interesting. Fascinating. Um, how can people get in touch if they, well, f first and foremost, how does it work in terms of if, if I came along and said, hey, this is great. I want to launch a newsletter in Q1. How would that work if someone wants to kind of work with you guys? Yeah, um, well, super easy. You can go to our, our page, daily.ai, and um, you know you book a demo with our team. And if you want to move forward, it's super easy. You fill out a, an onboarding survey. You get on a 45-minute onboarding call with one of our onboarding specialists. And then our team will produce your newsletter for you, our team and our product. You'll review the assets, approve them. The team will help you get it launched. And it's a managed service. So every day or every week or whatever your cadence is, You'll get your newsletter in advance. You'll be able to review and approve it or make changes. It gets sent on the platform. We, we send you the stats. We send you the content to approve. So you don't, you don't even have to look at our product if you don't want to. It's a completely managed service. So we want to make the, the outcome of newsletters better, faster, and cheaper than a human team. Are you allowed to discuss pricing or do they have to go through the demo? <laughs> no, yeah. Um, we, you know, thus far, we've uh, very transparently, I mean, like we launched to the public in January. So we, we, we've been testing pricing for 11 months. Um, but uh, literally tomorrow, by the time this podcast is available to the public, you'll be able to go to our page and there'll be a, a very transparent pricing page. It's metered by how often you want to send your newsletter and how many subscribers you have. So yeah, oh, you'll no, be able to very easily tell. And, and I take it there's different, are there different tierings depending on kind of how much you want to do and how much time it takes for you guys to manage that? Yeah, exactly. Like if you have less subscribers and you want to send it twice a month or less, it's about 500 bucks a month. If you want to do it weekly and you've got more subscribers, it's about a thousand bucks a month. And if you've got sort of enterprise uh, where you're doing like a million cents a month, it's going to be something like 1500 bucks a month. Awesome. And then if you've got the more subscribers you get, the more you pay. But we, we want to kind of hedge our success to your success. If we're helping you grow a newsletter that's driving traffic and money for you, then you, know, you pay more for subscribers as they come on. Love it. This is awesome. I'm, I, as I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to knock on your door about this in Q1. So I was actually asking for me because <laughs> we're in the process Great. of doing, doing quite a lot of work on our marketing. So that will be cool. Um, what's next then? So let's talk about kind of um, what you're looking for, anything else like that. Obviously, I'm going to encourage people to kind of go to your site and, uh, and check it out, particularly if they want to kind of use this. This really, really important. I think it's a crucial uh, element of marketing. You know, if you kind of particularly want to not rely on all these other sources that you can't control. But uh, what's next for you in the business? What are you um, focused on? Yeah, so we're, um, you know, very transparently, we're like 
seven customers away from our first million in annual recurring revenue, which is oh, kind brilliant. of our big goal for the first year. Yeah. Is there a prize um, for the person so who next, gets you over a million? Because that could like, I could do that and then I get it free for life. Yeah, great. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, if, if, if you, if, if this, if this podcast generates uh, eight sales, we'll, we'll probably be, have hit that target, honestly, by you've probably by done it time. before like the our, end of our, today. So that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, so that, like that, that's kind of our big milestone. I think we're going to blow right by that, you know, by for the end of the year. And um, we ju we just launched paid ads and that's going very, very well. Like our customer acquisition costs and payback period is just the best I've ever seen in any business I've ever been a part of. So, um, you know, next year uh, in Q1, starting in January, we're going to market with the, with a capital raise. Um, we've raised a little bit of money thus far, a couple million on a safe note, but we're going to do our first priced round. And, you know, that money is basically going to two things. We're going to go build out our engineering team. We're an AI company, got to stay competitive there. And then, um, yeah, we're going to, all the experimentation we've done on paid traffic uh, and getting our, getting our metrics right. Um, you know, we're going to, we're going to back up the Brinks truck and, and try to grab the market next year. Our goal is to get to 10 million in annual recurring revenue by the end of next year. So Love that's, it. that's, that's what's next for us. Awesome. Okay. Exciting times. And you already had some big exits already, Joe. So you know, people would say that, you know, you're a bit selfish here trying to go for another massive scale up, but Hey, <laughs> we'll encourage, we'll encourage <laughs> it. Um, okay. I'm going to carry, I'm going to say to all of um, the scale up listeners, again, as I said, go and check out daily.ai, particularly if you want to kind of look at this uh, as something that could help your business. And I know there are lots of investors who listen to my show, both venture capital and private equity angel investors. If this is something that you think is interesting, uh, I'm going to suggest also reaching out to Joe uh, in Q1 as they're going for their capital raise. So Joe, um, how can people get in touch with you if they want to reach out to you personally? Yeah, uh, best way is you can um, visit me, well, DM me on Instagram. So Joe Stolte Live, it's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Uh, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn uh, and message me there. Um, yeah, or you can email us success at daily.ai and just mention me and that'll get routed to me the appropriate way. Awesome. Well, this has been great. As I said, we haven't gone into the detail of this type of marketing activity. We've touched on it, but not maybe to the depth that you've gone through today. And I like the little segue into culture as well. That's going to be useful for people. So, uh, Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Nick. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.